and welcome to episode 60 of The Dive Down, a Magic the Gathering podcast for the casual spike focused on the latest decks, trends, and strategies in Modern and Pioneer. My name is Stanislav here in Chicago, and with me on the line from Denver, Colorado, it's the winner of GP Phoenix, Shane Beeps. I didn't didn't actually read uh, how you're going to introduce me this week, and I'm just like, (laughs) <laughs> yeah i definitely i definitely uh made it to day two that bubble got a lot a lot bigger huh yeah i might have won i might have won it's just to listen to re- for the results later also with us in chicago the godfather dave harburger you know i made it day two two f- five years ago it's not that big of a deal with a better with a better record than i finished up with mm, honestly just by one win just by one but i have that tattooed on my knuckles <laughs> one win better i've never day two to anything so i look up to both of you finally it's taken 60 episodes <laughs> we got there and now we have some big and sad news to bring you this week you may have seen this on our twitter as well as zach's twitter but if not our red mage zach Colhan is no longer going to be our co-host on the dive down with his increasing professional responsibilities at work and just life stuff in general. Zach was finding it more difficult to find a balance between his personal and professional life and the pod. Yeah, this kind of sucks because Zach was truly instrumental in making the dive down what it's become, right? His sense of humor, his dedication to his play style, his positive outlook on people and the game of magic is really second to none. And that's truly appreciated and not really easily replaceable at all. I think the podcast is definitely going to be a lot less gobliny without Zach on it. Um, we all really thank you. And I know the the listeners in the Dive Down Nation all thank you for all of your great work over the past year plus, Zach. Good luck. I was just going to say, I think it's it's hard when, um, when things that you love kind of go through changes like this. And, you know, I think we just want everybody to know that those of us that are left are still going to do our best to carry on his legacy of the love and dedication to the magic community and um you know still hope to interact with him at tournaments and things like that i imagine we'll see him around on twitter and other places like that as well but we will kick off today's show with a breakdown of the regional players tour phoenix which i'm assuming shane won i haven't actually looked at the results then we dive into the format where it all began it's modern week We spent some time looking at post-ban modern challenges and preliminary tournaments, coupled with our own experiences playing MTGO leagues, and we've woven a beautiful canvas depicting the state of today's modern format. But first, some housekeeping. Greetings and salutations to the newest members to join the Dive Down Nation. Shoutouts this week go to Kyle P., Henry P., no relation, and Paul J. Also, Justin Takey. (laughs) Take key <laughs> you want to try that again justin tk thank you so much for your support we're keeping it all in don't worry also thanks uh to grizzleby and rashadar for the kind reviews on apple podcasts we're always appreciative of our fans thanks everyone for your ongoing support i was too committed to the rhyme that's what happens paul take justin take hey was one of my favorite rappers from the 90s if you'd like to support the show, you can check us out at patreon.com slash the dive down. 
You could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Heck, just tell your friends about us. We always love having new friends, new listeners. As always, you can support the show directly by supporting yourself with the Mana Trader subscription. You can use coupon code the dive down, all one word, to get 15% off your first three months of renting magic online cards on manatraders.com. And one thing I've noticed is that we, we can see the codes that people sign up with. Like you, so there's like a link, right? There's a link in our show notes, and it takes you to sign up. And then you can also put in the sign up code, right? So I've noticed, Nation, that some of you have put in the code dive down, not the dive down. So there might be some people out there that have used a non-functional sign up code, just dive down. So it's it's always it's just always the dive down, all one word. Don't include the all one word part. I'm sure I'm confusing you more than I'm make, making anything clear. The dive down. Shane's being coy, but we know who you are. <laughs> and we've set you up for some really interesting retargeting. So uh, enjoy your ads because they're about to get blown up. All right, with the housekeeping out of the way, let's jump over to our resident grinder, Shane Beeps, for this week's breakdown. All right, so last week we talked about the regional players tour events in Europe and Asia Pacific. And the follow-up North American regional players tour event in Phoenix took place over the last weekend. I was actually at the GP. I flew down with uh, some other members of the Dive Down Nation. We had a good time. And it was just happening in one side of the room. It was a really nice branded area. I saw a lot of much better players than myself uh, duking it out. It was really cool. About 355 players qualified to participate in the event. So there was six rounds of limited. 10 rounds of Pioneer constructed over Friday and Saturday, and then the top eight takes place on the third day Sunday. And so all the players here had the chance to respond to the previous weekend's metagame, right? So they all saw the results. They saw what happened. They got the same data we all did. I heard them talking about it on the podcast. I'm sure you listened to as well. They were you know, all saying, you know, what does this mean? How are people going to react? How are we going to react? And I think we were all really interested in how Phoenix might look a little bit different as a result of that. And so, as is really nice from Wizards lately in their like Mythic Championship level and Pro Tour, Player Store rather, still have a hard time with that, events, uh, they release all the deck lists, we see all the pairings, we know everything that's happening, so we get a, a really good while small, cross-section of what's happening. So the day one metagame looks like this. 20% Demir Inverter. 13% Bant Spirits. 10% Red Aggro. 9% Lotus Breach. Uh, Sultide Delirium and Mono Black Aggro at 8%. 5% Mono White Heliod. 4% Sultai Inverter and Azorius Control. And then 22% was an other. And so that had stuff like Vampires, 5-Color Demizit. Is it in Soul? Simic ramp and so on. So I have to admit, I'm a little bit surprised to see Bant Spirits so high and Sultide Delirium only at 8%. It seems like the kind of deck that a lot of pro tour level players, tour level players would want to bring to the event to me. I mean, I think that it's tough. I mean, you played in the GP this week. Sure. Did you feel like, I mean, Sultai Delirium is sort of like, do you believe in mid-range? Yeah. Right? Do you believe that that's really something that belongs in the format, is good in the format right now? And it really felt to me like going into it that people were very 
just into combo. Oh yeah. Hello, pioneer combo. Yeah. So I could definitely see the pros end up deciding that that was a dominated strategy because mid range didn't have enough tools against combo and wasn't fast enough to beat it on its own. Yeah. That's a good point, right? It's like if, if they know about Lotus breach, if they know about Demir inverter, why bring the deck that has to kind of draw the right parts of its deck to pick apart their hand, to disrupt their strategy. So, yeah, I mean, we saw that happen, right? Like, so they didn't really want to play fair deck. So 33% of the field was on some kind of inverter or a breach strategy, right? So these decks might have some ability to play fair while generating that combo finish. And I think that's more on the uh, inverter side of things. But yeah, I mean, breach literally does nothing other than puts up a blocker in like a Seder Wayfinder or a, a Royal Grazer. Yeah. But yeah, by and large, so 33, 33% of the room was on like a combo finish potential. That's, that's a lot. There was definitely a lot of buzz. I think we were seeing about how broken Lotus Breach was. Like a lot of the CFB people were talking about it. It makes sense. Right? It's like it's super fast. It has a lot of ways to piece together those game-winning uh, situations the Lotus Breach deck does. So my question here is what happened with that deck in between in between last weekend and this weekend? Because it felt like that was the one that got the big boost in buzz and also the big boost in results, frankly, and people playing it. I, going into the first PTs, I thought that Lotus Breach was going to be the thing that everybody ended up on in the first place. Me too. And then for it to come later, I mean, I guess, do people think that it beats Inverter? Or what? did you get an impression of what that was? Yeah, it's like it turned faster, essentially. Because in- Inverter doesn't interact incredibly well with it. I mean, I don't know what does. And Inverter runs the Thoughtseize, you know what I mean? So it's like, if, if Inverter is running hand disruption, if they're running you know, tools to even take out important pieces with like thought erasure or what are the ones that kind of strip things from like their entire deck lost legacy and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. They all, they have the ability to run those type of cards and they do, but yet Lotus breach is continually able to kind of go off typically turn three or turn four, I think. Um, but Lotus breach, excuse me, but the mirror inverter kind of is usually like maybe turn five ish. So it's just like a step behind. Yeah, I mean, it has no ramp, and it has no way to get to cheat out, you know, a four CMC card into a two CMC or a four CMC card. So yeah, exactly. What's the matchup like between those two? Well, I think Breach is usually faster. Is what I was kind of trying to get at. I think Breach can, and you look at the results. Is Breach is typically one of Demir Inverter's only like sub fifty percent matchups. Like Demir sort of hovers a lot around fifty percent. Um, there's some, there's some that it's much better than 50%, of course, but Lotus breach is like, it's only good matchup. We're kind of, you know, skipping ahead a little bit, but that's not really where you want your combo decks to be is, is one only being beaten by another. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the other decks that you had. I think, I think the fair decks in the room were kind of a few categories and surprisingly kind of narrow categories. You had like your just aggressive decks like mono red. You had your disruptive aggressive decks like Spirits or Mono Black. And then you had like your mid-range deck, the Sultai Delirium style deck, doing what they could to sort of disrupt the opponent and then generate so much value over the long game that you know they just destroy almost every aggressive strategy because they just remove things, they play tons of two-for-ones, they have Uro, so that's kind of just all you need. <laughs> I mean, 
Spellcrawler can counter Inverter, mm-hmm. which is maybe a little handy to buy, your, buy yourself a turn back. So that that's why you end up with Spirits being around. Sure. Mono Black has some removal that can, can be used to kill Thassa's Oracle if they're not ready for that, and the trigger's on the stack in a bad way. So there's a little bit going on there that helps, for sure. Yeah, and Spirits lets you run blue, so you're able to play like Mystical Dispute, which is just a hugely important card right now. Right. Mystical Dispute was the most played card, I think, I saw in the GP, if you included sideboards. Yep. It was like 690 car- like cards. You know, out of all the decks, pretty wild. Oh, sorry, in the PT, not the GP. Yeah. Yeah. Which means like an average of somewhere like three three copies per deck. Yeah. Which seems like completely insane when I say that. No, two copies per deck. So that's just crazy. So let's briefly talk about day two. Um, as we said last week, you know, it's because they do three rounds of draft and only five rounds of pioneer on day one, the day two conversion isn't entirely meaningful, but we saw some interesting trends begin to emerge. So Lotus Breach gained six percent, Demir Inverter gained four. Saltide Delirium game three, and then the sort of aggressive-y, disruptive decks like Bant Spirits, Mono Black, and Mono Red all lost a percent or two uh, between day one and day two. So the the big gains of Lotus Breach and Demir Inverter are definitely noticed, and everything else was somewhat flat. After day one was over, I saw that LSV was tweeting things like, Breach is obscene. There's going to be a lot of copies in the top eight. Just about everyone I know playing it has absurd records. And so let's see if his uh, prediction rings true by talking about the top eight for a second. So we had Corey Burkhart win the event with Demir Inverter over William Huey Jensen on Lotus Breach. So Corey Burkhart is a what he just always does like Grixis control typically. Yeah. And so him him winning with a with a Demir control deck is not surprising to me. Um, and then we saw Huey um, on the CFB team, I believe, on Lotus Breach, which they identified as a deck that they wanted to be playing. And so we saw the two big-name combo decks in the field show up here in the finals with two really good pilots. I mean, Poetic Justice, a terrifying twist in reality, where all of a sudden we have combo decks facing off against each other again. I mean... I mean, right after that, though, in the sem- people who lost in the semis were uh, Zachary Keeney on Mono Red. Um, this is a faster version. It has four Rimrock Knights, two Zergo Bell Strikers, four Abbot of Carol Keeps. Um, and this deck is looking to push damage pretty quickly. And Jacob Wilson, another excellent player on Sultai Delirium. And so, you know, right after we have these combo decks, we do see, you know, an aggressive deck and then a fair, fair mid range deck right after there. So we're not we're not in you know the the dark space yet. And losing in the quarters, we saw Alan Wu on Lotus Breach, another like top tier player that you might not know their name. I think he's like leading the ELO project right now, like the that sort of third party tracking thing that they look at like how what people's matchups are and, and things like that. So another excellent player, Austin Bursevich, also an amazing player on Azorius Control. Pete Ingram, another excellent player on Demir Inverter, and Thomas Ashton, who made a pro players tour top eight. So they are also in my bucket of excellent players on Bant Spirits. <laughs> so yeah, what do you guys think about this top eight? I mean, going into it, if we expected those two decks, Inverter and Breach, to be the best decks in the format, and we only see two of each in the top eight, sounds to me like people knew how to beat it, how to play against it, and found out some decks that had an okay matchup. 
Yeah. I mean, it's interesting that the the pros seem to ha- have that work out. And specifically, it seemed like Band Spirits did pretty well for the pros when maybe there was a little bit of like question of whether that was going to happen. I will point out that I know we're not going to talk much about the Grand Prix, but the Grand Prix had five Demir Inverter decks yep. in the top eights, along with two Bant Spirits and a Mono Red deck with, with the winner. Um, so that metagame felt much more unbalanced than the Pro Tour did players tour did i mean this is a of course they're pros so but it's a it's a great top eight and um i think it's really cool that Corey burkhart finally got a win um i worry a little bit about um what i've seen a few people mention right now which is pioneer being a format that doesn't have great interaction or cheap interaction all the time falling prey to more combo decks that are fueled by new cards specifically thassa's oracle uh, in both cases in this in this case. So that does worry me a little bit about the health of the metagame. People are banging the band drum already, and I guess we'll just kind of see what happens. But by the thing that is strange to me, and I'll I'll talk a little bit about my GP experience. I played um a slightly more aggressive red deck. I didn't play chonky red. It was it topped out at uh, three Torbrins and a Chandra and a Hazaret. So there was a still a significant number of four drops, but my plan was to try to beat up on these inverter decks, right? Like I was like, well, if I have the ability to play my prowess creatures, to you know get my bone crusher giant down, get a rabble master down where they're not able to interact with it, and I just uh swing out and get them dead. And that is not the case. And so typically, like in modern, we would say that like aggro beats combo, right? Because combo is not interacting well with what aggressive decks are trying to do. And they can just get them dead right before the combo really goes off. Is that something that you'd agree with? Yeah, but I mean, it's clear, you know, Inverter, like we talked about on last week's episode when I played it, Inverter is got has a ton of access to creature removal. And it has the best creature removal in the format and Fatal Push and the Chalky Red decks in particular have cards that generally fall into the range of being pushable. Yep. And they also have Fabled Passage, so they can keep Fabled Passage up to be able to enable uh, it as well. So, And then they also have Drown in the Lock and, and a couple of other tools. So, Yeah, so this is what I'm getting at, is that because the aggressive decks are less likely or have to be built in certain ways to get under decks like Demir Inverter. I think that's kind of maybe the challenge that I see even more than sort of what's considered the interaction. Because I think the interaction exists on like sort of the creature removal end of things. And that's why Demir Inverter is able to keep going. It has the you know counter spells, it has, you know, creature removal like Fatal Push, like Drown in the Lock. And therefore it's able to just stop the aggression because it's all board based because there's no such thing as like, you know, you're not getting your 20 bolt deck. Yeah. I wish we had that 20 bolt deck. <laughs> it's called burn and modern. It's reasonably close. You can play some shard volleys and some, some other things and get, get there. Lava spike dot deck. Yeah. So why don't we talk about the data a little bit, Shane? I know that you, you put a little bit of time into like looking around and seeing what the actual data was. So I, you looked at Goldfish and Magic MTGMeta.io. Looked around the performance p- percentages. What did you find? So there were forty players that did seven three or better in the constructive. So if you look just at the constructive performance, don't look at it at the limited environment at all. 
we can see kind of what the best performing decks in the room were. And this is where stuff got pretty eye-opening to me. 33% of those 40 decks were Lotus Breach. 25% of those decks were Demir Inverter. So just to be clear, 33% of 40 is 13. Yeah. Or 14, right? And then 25% is 10. Yeah. So 58% of the decks that performed well, I think there was a, a Sultai Inverter in there as well kind of in the other bucket. Sure. So I think that's you know something like 60% were combo finish decks. And then we had 7.5% were things like Salt Eye Delirium, 7.5% Bant Spirit, 7.5% Azorius Control, 5% Mono Red, Mono Black, and 10% Other. So 40 people, 60% combo were the 7 or 7, 3 or better decks. Kind of a bad look. So 24 of the 40 people were on combo the other 16 were on so if you wanted to play a good deck this weekend more likely than not you were running lotus breach or demir inverter and so this is backed up by the data we have about just the raw win rates of the players who were on those decks lotus breach 64 percent demir inverter 55 and then sultite delirium and azorius control were also both at like 55 56 percent so those are pretty good win rates i mean the it was a player store environment. It was a regional player store environment. So there's still all really good players, but you do have some of the best players in the world in the room who can capitalize on their skill. But 64%, that's a big win rate. That's eye opening. Uh, it's terrifying, is what it is. <laughs> yeah. Those are the only four decks with, only, with a 50% win rate or higher at the player store. So, so everything else was sub 50? Yes. Just because the sample was so, there were so many people on Breach and, and uh, Inverter, basically. Yeah, Delir- Salto Delirium, Azorius Control, Demir Inverter, Lotus Breach. And then decks like Mono White Heliod, Mono Black Aggro, Mono Red, and even Bant Spirits and Sultai Inverter were below 50%. I think like Bant Spirits and Mono Red were right around 50 but still, it's not necessarily where you want to be. I mean, again, sample size type stuff. So take it with a slight grain of salt, but we're seeing some trends develop over time. We have like these, we have these three tournaments now. We have the, the three players, regional player stores, and we can see these trends like the, the combo decks of Lotus Breach and Demir Inverter are really good. Like Lotus Breach has a 60% win rate over 356 matches. And Demir Inverter, which has a much larger sample size over twice as many as 891 matches is 56%. We don't see a lot of decks at 56% over a long period of time. Survive. Yeah. Is the word you were going to add to that sentence? Survive can mean a number of things, right? Like Grixis Death Shadow never ate a ban. Right. And it's so the metagame responded, right? And you know, even the fair deck in Saltide Delirium is performing really strongly. It's got a 59% win rate. The sample size of matches is 247. And you have people like Yul Larson and Reed Duke playing the deck in a tournament. You're going to see good matches, but you know we when we see decks with 50 percent high, you know high 50 percent win rates, the metagame adjusts or Wizards adjusts, and we'll have to see what happens in the near future. Like how are people going to be attacking this, or is Wizards going to attack? I guess the thing that's the biggest surprise to me is that Azorius Control was pretty high mm-hmm. on that list still, and so. As someone who looks the, at this list of cards and goes, well, I, I kind of have Demir Inverter as a deck in my arsenal, uh, but I'm probably 
gonna go to control i guess i don't know when you played in the in the grand prix did it feel like you were behind these decks when you ran into them with a, one of the 50 percent decks did the people that you were talking to feel that way in terms of like you mean blue white control or in terms of the other ones oh yeah no i mean i mean the other ones like did you run into a lot of lotus breach in the grand prix as well i played very i played three flavors of inverter i played against the the blue splashing black um devotion style which i don't think is particularly good build of the deck but you do get to flash in inverter is part of why people play it right because they play Leyline of anticipation yes and just you know there's there's more blockers so i i was able to win that one but i definitely did not feel even with my hyper aggressive draws that i i mulled to like i had you know a really incredible six versus like my opponent at four right and they still won just fine. And it's because if they have a single removal spell for your Goblin Rebel Master that you're leaning on, and like you're like, I need this Rebel Master to be unchecked for two turns. That's a lot to ask. Yeah, that is a lot to ask. Yeah, I think that I think that the inverter is surprisingly good against the aggressive decks, as like I said before, it has removal. And it's even smart for them to like leave in thought seizes because they can like like I played against uh, Jonathan Rossum on Inverter, and game three he thought seizes me, and uh, I was like, oh well, that's gutsy, but I think it's smart. Like I can generate a lot more than two damage out of some of my cards. So you pick out something in my curve, you pick out an early curve piece for you have removal for something later. It's just a it's a it's smart to do because the deck has much more solid inevitability. Than like a blue white control deck does in Pioneer. Yeah, you didn't feel like you would we're gonna see that post sideboard, huh? Uh, I mean I didn't it didn't like it didn't really come into play because it was like I couldn't keep there was no hand I could keep that was like more thought seize proof than it, essentially. Shane, so if you're saying that either the metagame has to adapt or wizards has to adapt, let's start with that first right. bucket. What do you think the metagame or the pioneer card pool has that could start attacking you know, one of these two decks, if not both. Well, I mean, they, these decks really don't operate very well without their graveyard. I think that we could see stronger graveyard hate than things like uh, Tormod's Crypt. I think that that's why being able to run Recipes is good. Being able to run Leyland of the Void is good. I think more honestly, uh, Damping Sphere is really strong against Lotus Breach. They have to be able to you know, maybe tutor up spells that can bounce it. They do have uh, granted off of the Fey of Wishes that probably can. Yeah, they get blink blink of an eye quite often, right? Yeah. So there's a lot of ways for them to deal with it, but it can buy you time. I think aggressive decks, and like I said, aggressive decks do offer more of a threat against Lotus Breach than they do against Demir Inverter. So that particular combination is probably pretty decent because they can't go off until they get to the ability to to remove your damping sphere. I don't really know, Stan, honestly. Like, I think that we've seen some tech in the builds of, like, the Saltite Delirium deck, like the uh, Brain Maggots tech that... Is that Brain Maggot? Is that what it's called from Theros? Yeah. Yeah, so what you can do, like, you can traverse for it after they Inverter and then get the, get the other piece and exile it. Right, and they don't really have the ability to re- potentially remove your the brain maggot on the field, so it keeps the card exile those deck themselves. 
So it's like there's a lot of like fun things you can I think do in toolbox decks like that. I think Bant Spirits can probably keep learning how to play the matchup better too, potentially. It's like I don't know, man. I'm not I'm not expert in in playing all these decks against all these other decks, but I, I just I have hope. Um excuse me, you just you just made the day two of a Grand Prix. <laughs> that's that's a lot of coin flips going my way, Dave. <laughs> I think I mean there's there's like two there's like three times I can point to uh to to doing something where I was like I made the right decision and and I uh I really felt like I played really well. I mean like so uh, let's let me talk a little bit about that. You want me to do that to the listening ears of the nation? I know that people in the nation want to hear about it. I know that uh Stan and I would love to hear a little bit about what your GP run was like. We might as well put it right here. Sure. So like let's keep it under let's keep it under four minutes, five minutes. Okay, so I went to the GP, I brought in slightly aggressive mono red. Uh I lost my first match. To, Who did you hang out with it at the GP though? It's all about the gathering, it's not about the magic. Honestly, it was that was that was a really good part. We had a really good crew. I went down with uh Spencer who is, he plays at the store that I play at uh, most often, which is not that often, but we do see each other there. And he's an awesome dude. He brought a friend of his who, I guess, manages a game store up north of Denver. So he had a lot of inside information for, uh, he, he knew a lot more card names than I did. Let's just say that. And we met up with uh, Dom from the Bay Area. Dom, awesome dude. Uh, Mickey, he's a Phoenix local who we actually... Started, he, he found the dive down through uh, Todd's Anderson's Twitch stream. He saw me say I was going to go to the, 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 the GP and he joined the nation. So shout out to Mickey and also uh, Matt, Max rather. Max was there. He is somewhat local. Uh, he had a, uh, and we hung out with him too. And that was awesome. We all, uh, three of us played the main event, four of us, I think. And the, Two guys just did side events, and the GP experience overall was really awesome. Uh, I will give a lot of props to Channel Fireball. They ran a great event. It was open. It was clean. There were awesome judges everywhere. Everything made sense. Signage was good. Vendors were good. It was uh, The weather was awesome. They controlled that. I thank them for the really nice weather. <laughs> so... That was a cool part. We 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 did some side events on Friday, practiced a little bit on Friday night, and woke up fresh and ready to attack the day, which I promptly lost my first match against a Sultai mid-range deck, which is a 80-20 matchup, maybe, against Mono Red. Uh, it's incredibly good. <laughs> and I was like, well, this might be a fast day, and proceeded to sort of uh, win and basically win out i won i won the next six um i went i was at five and one and i was like well i need to win one of the next two uh i played against a really good player a player whose name is known to for my for my win in winning in at six and one and i we had a really good game and i was this this is this is definitely like one of those things where like when did you feel like you level up leveled up and it was this game where i was against blue white control and i had a game plan against it and executed the game plan and was able to win and that felt really cool like that was just a neat thing to make my first day two off the back of of beating someone who i've known for years as a much better player than me and is still a much better player than me uh one match doesn't change that and you're not going to name this person i mean that seems rude you know who they are um fair 
but more importantly, all my matches were awesome. Like people were really, really chill. Everyone was there to have a good time. We were chit chatting, you know, where are you from? Uh, you know, how are you enjoying Phoenix? Like, how are you enjoying the GP? No one was, was, you know, I think you go to these things expecting people to be kind of angle shooting. You kind of worry about playing that player who's like, yeah, but uh, every, honestly, I think that's like, that's the exception. That is not the rule. It very much is. I think people need to like, relax a little bit when it comes. I mean, there are people out there who are trying to angle shoot and heard jerks about stuff, but for the most part, you know, everybody's really cool um, quite often at the events I've gone to. So yeah, it was really good, really good event. And um, yeah, going into day two was a little bit anxiety inducing at the GP that you and I were at when I day two, I had a similar start. I started out one, two yeah. and then had to win out to do it. And it happened. And then you won out. Yeah, that was awesome. And we couldn't we couldn't have fun in Vegas. Yep. And similarly, I know that you had trouble sleeping. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. I also had trouble sleeping before it because you're just kind of like, what is this going to be like? I can't believe it happened. Well, whenever I'm, you know, coming off of a big magic event, whether or not I win or lose, I have trouble sleeping just because like I'm playing games in my brain against my will and I'm dreaming of, you know, triggers. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I think just thinking about scenarios that you're going to find yourself in, what are you going to do in matchups? Like, you know, am I going to change my sideboarding type thing? Like what happened today that, you know, I need to change for tomorrow, that kind of thing. Did you have a sideboard guide with you? Did you have like notes? Yeah, I wrote one out. And then I I even changed it a little bit. Like after day one, I was like, oh, I I really should have Lava Coil in against Inverter in case they bring in Kalidus against me type thing. So yeah, it also tags, uh, it also exiles the the Thassa's Oracle, so do it. You can change your sideboard between days one and two, or just your sideboard plan? No. No, just change my plan. Just change my plan. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah, you cannot do that. That would be illegal. Well, if it would be legal, it would be disqualification. Yeah. So so what is, so, all right, so day one, you're like grinding it out. When did you start to kind of get to a point where you were like, I feel like this is kind of happening a little bit? Like, did you get to three and one and go maybe i'm starting to put together a run or no okay five five and one (laughs) five and one because then i was then i was like i just gotta win one of the next two yeah i mean i think that's the safe way to the pragmatic way to be right to just like keep it calm and be like anything can happen i mean i'm sure lots of us have started tournaments three one before and been like you know yeah i can i can these the train can always go off the track here yeah um and so often it does The the thing that I am actually most happy about is I have I have been in situations where I have been winning and then I just get really anxious, I mess up, I'm starting to play badly, I'm overthinking things or underthinking things. And I was really even keel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you pause a tilt. Yeah, pause a tilt. I have a tendency to do that too. It's like I don't tilt that bad from losing, but I can tilt pretty hard from winning a couple of times when I felt like I I didn't deserve it or I felt like I played really well. And then all of a sudden I just loosen up my range and it's like, yeah, it's bad. Yeah. So that was, that was what I was actually most proud of was just keeping, keeping to my game plan, knowing what my, what my plan is against certain decks, mulliganing to that game plan, not keeping looser hands. The deck cooperated extremely well, but you're not going to win magic if your deck's not cooperating very much anyway, at least I'm not. So it was just a confluence of factors and that helped a lot. And so I went into, so you play the ninth round on day one 
So you basically make day two after round eight, and then you play the first round so that they can finish up things in good time on the second day. And so um, I forget even if I won or lost that one. But anyway, did I win? I believe you won, didn't you? Didn't you go into... Yeah, yeah, I went. I went in at seven one or seven two. Seven two. Yeah, I went in at seven two. Yeah, so that felt good. Going in at seven two felt awesome. I mean, day two, I didn't perform quite as well. I, I don't think. I, thankfully, it's not due to any big mistakes. I don't think so. That felt good. Like my biggest mistake was day one, and that was just forgetting some triggers that actually would have won me the match. Um, but you know, let's let's forget about that. But day two, I didn't make, feel like I made many mistakes. It just the deck performed a little bit less well i probably made mistakes i don't even know that i made i'm certain that happened um i played better players i played better decks um i played slightly worse matchups and and that's what happened but by and so i finished at nine and six um thankfully the last round my opponent and i were both in position if we won we would cash so we decided just say let's split and uh no matter what happens we trust each other to just you know send the money when we get it type thing so uh, i ended up losing that match so thanks to my opponent for being chill i'm sure eventually i'll see my half of the what 250 prize and it was fun you know i could say i cashed a gp technically um not by my record but by just getting into a position where i could split and honestly it was it was some of the most fun magic i've had in a long time because everyone was very cool to play against so I'm gonna ask you the same question that my wife asked me after my day two, which was, "Do you feel like you're good now, and you feel like you were no? You've kind of proven yourself <laughs> not good as in a good player, but good as in some of the competitive edges satiated, or do you think that yeah, all of a sudden you've unlocked a fire and you're like, I'm gonna get on a plane to the next Pioneer GP? Well, that's a good question, Dave. Um, I really like, I really do think Pioneer is an incredible format. Um. Mono red in Pioneer is so much different than mono red in in Modern. It's absurdly different. It's so much about the board status and thinking about how to generate positions you can win from, and that felt really cool to identify and execute those. Um, a, a lot more than kind of living off the top of my deck, like I feel I do in Modern Burn sometimes. I mean, you still live off the top of your deck; it's magic, right? But it's it felt like I had to maneuver myself into a way to to turn the corner to push damage through. And that was really cool. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I, I think that it was, it was a lot of fun. I would definitely will play any pioneer GP that's in the future. I mean, I think that the, the next one we'll probably get to is like Vegas and I'm sure there's going to be some kind of pioneer stuff there. Um, but yeah, it's, it's one of those things where it makes me feel like, yeah, I could, I could win a PPTQ. Do you know what I mean? Like, or a PTQ. I could, I could, I could go to an event and, and hold my own against and, hold my own against players, understand the metagame, understand I know my role and and things like that. So And that and you're talking about Pioneer specifically now. Yeah. Because I feel like, you know, as your friend and observer, you've just been putting in the work into Pioneer, testing lots of different decks, watching the format evolve over time. Yeah, mainly in preparation for this. Do you know what I mean? Like I always I knew I was going to this event for months and so I wanted to be prepared for it. I'm definitely going to take a break from Pioneer mentally for a few weeks i'm gonna check out i want to play some modern um everyone else was playing a lot of modern that we were hanging out with and so that was something i was like man this this looks fun like they're playing that uh playing the new dredge deck they're playing the yogmoth deck you know uh one of our 
one of our guys was playing uh, Jund because he's just a, a BGX player, dieted in wool. So everyone's playing what they want and having some fun. You know, I saw people playing Tron. I was like, I haven't seen those cards in a long time. Oh, we're going to talk about that in a couple of minutes. A long time. Yeah, I think I've talked enough. So thanks for giving me a little bit of a platform to talk about. I think uh, much more much more than my performance, I think the performance of everyone else at the event was what's uh, truly awesome. Uh, everyone was very cool. CFE was very cool. Uh, the Dive Down Nation was very cool. And it made me really appreciate that Magic is still a community I'm very happy to be a part of. Shane, I'm so happy to hear that you had a rewarding weekend. What's next? Well, Stan, I think we're going to take a quick break. And when we return, we'll dive into our analysis of today's modern meta. Stay with us. If you've been playing modern for at least a couple months, or at least listening to our show for that long, you'll probably recall the format-shaking bans that were announced on Monday, January 13th, when Mox Opal, Oko Thief of Crowns, and Microsoft Lattice were banned out of the format. Black Monday, they called it. For some people. I was driving through London at the time. I'll never forget where I was when Microsoft Lattice was banned. <laughs> Is it Blue Monday, maybe? So these three cards, in their own way, had shaped the nature of Modern's meta for a long time, right? Maybe, or in the case of Oko, not that long, but certainly had done a lot of damage. Uh, and since their ban and the introduction of Theros Beyond Death, the format's been shifting towards a new metagame. Uh, so we, we wanted to take a look at that. And so we decided to pour over a bunch of data and try to bring forth an assessment of where Modern is going right now. And that's exactly what it did. We made some spreadsheets, turned them into pivot tables, organized them with filters, and voila, created a meta snapshot and tier list of post- ban modern guys we really should have planned this episode better if i was going to talk about data for that long this is like data the episode this is like the sequel to our math episode but he's my favorite character on tng anyway so i heard there's some weird stuff with him and picard you guys watching picard is that a thing i've heard i've heard i've heard it's weird too i kind of want to see i'm not going to subscribe to cbs all access though sorry cbs i know you're a sponsor i got some websites for you to check out dave hmm And based on the data from the last four modern challenges, as well as 15 modern preliminaries, we'll share some of our empirical findings, some anecdotal observations, and reflect on how modern feels today compared to last year. So since Shane loves data and loves disclaimers, the one thing that we wanted to point out really quickly here is that our data is essentially based off of win counts, raw win counts of different decks, different archetypes, and things like that across these events. So we have no way of knowing if the frequency of the wins, how much of that's related to performance versus how much of that is related to portion of entry metagame, let's say, like, you know, the the equivalent of kind of a day one meta and a Grand Prix kind of idea. But... So you're saying we don't know the conversion rates, Dave? Correct. Yeah, we don't know the conversion rates here. Like, we don't know how many how many people entered a given modern challenge with Titan shift. We just know how many showed up in the top 32 and how those, how, what their final win totals were. But I still think there's a lot to learn from that and definitely gives us a sense of what the meta looks like and what the top end of the meta looks like in generally as well. 
So in general, some of the questions that we're going to try to answer as we look through these tournaments include what are the most popular and most successful archetypes in modern after the bands? We'll try to consider what makes these decks so good right now, as well as archetypes that are being unrepresented, either for the first time in a while or just at least in this moment. And I think at the end, we're probably all going to give an impression of what we're going to do now in modern as a result of kind of reading through and pouring through this data as the, the players that we are. Right, because it's definitely going to inform our choices about what we take to the dice dojo. That's right. Or what I put in my next league. So let's start with the modern challenges. Since these are bigger magic tournaments, they happen weekly on Saturdays. And it's not uncommon for these events to have as many players as a GP especially a contemporary GP. The minimum number of players for a challenge is eight, but it can top out at 672. Give me that eight-person challenge, please. (laughs) Some of the prelims were having a hard time firing, and at one point in time, they were having a hard time even getting 24 people, things like that. I remember that. In these modern challenges, you play typical Swiss-style rounds based on attendance. So more players equals more rounds in the tournament. And then after that, there's a cut to top eight. They actually cost about 25 bucks to play. And if you do really well, it can take a whole day to complete. So because of this, it tends to attract an upper echelon of MTGO players. For purposes of this episode, we will only be looking at decks that got into the top 32 of these tournaments, which typically means that the decks had gone 4x or better. So in other words, they had an over 50% win rate. And by looking at this data, we hope to not only get an idea of what's popular in high-level modern play these days, but additionally, what is producing results at high-level modern play in this, the year of our Lord, 2020? Yeah, and one thing I want to point out really quickly is that we're going to spend some time looking at challenges, and we're going to spend some time looking at prelims. We're looking at them separately from each other because they're different style events, right? The challenges, like Stan just explained, are essentially Swiss tournaments. They have a top eight. The prelims are leagues. We get data from both of them, right? But we wanted to keep them separate because the challenges are more rounds. And uh, they're also the Swiss style play instead of the league style play. Yeah, the advent of the prelims is one of my favorite things in terms of data quality that we've got from Wizards in a long time. Because we're able to see what decks are winning in a closed environment rather than what's just 5-0-ing in the larger league. We can see the increased frequency is the thing of the of if if m- multiple decks are doing well of the same type we get to see that happening. So without any more ado or caveats or worrying about whether you're going to nail us to some kind of uh data problems in Reddit, here are our observations from the most recent four modern challenges so let's start with looking at what we can say empirically are among the best decks and what are potentially the six best decks based on total match wins across these five tournaments in first place by a hair amulet titan 57 match wins across five tournaments and this is across all pilots who brought amulet titan decks to modern challenges Mm-hmm. In second place, Jund, 55 match wins, followed by Eldrazi Tron with 50, Mono Red Blitz, or as I call it, Mono Red Prowess, 47 match wins across these tournaments, 
Titan Field decks, 37, and Dredge, 32. So, great numbers, but I think there's a little bit of something that we need to do here to reduce things down a bit. So the only thing I'd like to do here is potentially move to consolidate Titan Field and Amulet Titan into a bigger bucket that just says Titan decks. Yeah. Because then it goes from being a, a whisker of a lead to being a total domination as far as the amount of amount of uh wins for these for these decks overall. Because if you consolidate t- Amulet Titan and Titan Field, you get 94. Yeah. Woof. With a second place being John at 55. And that is a big difference. I don't know. I'm not a math person, but so the next metric that we've got bucketed are decks that appeared at least five times in these post-ban modern challenges. So for here, I'll apply Dave's suggestion, combine Amulet Titan and Titan Field, and we saw this bucket of deck appear 19 times across these four tournaments for first place. Right, so that's 19 out of 128 decks, as we're pointing out. So it's just shy of you know one-sixth of the top 32 metagame across all of these. Right. And in second place is Jund with only 12. Hmm. And as, as we move down the line, we start to see a lot more, you know, closer numbers in terms of this representation. But Primeval Titan still clearly takes the cake for representation. Yeah, I got to say, as someone who's been honestly a little bit on the sidelines for modern the past few weeks, focusing on Pioneer in preparation for my stuff, is the, the people are right about Titan, clearly. I'm surprised by Jund, and I'm honestly surprised to see no Urza strategies that I can tell. I thought that I would still be around. Yep. And we have some more notes on this a little bit later, but Urza, as far as the way that it goes, was the 10th most popular super archetype in the challenges. So that's why it didn't make our list. There were only 22 of those grand total in these four challenges in the top 32s. Mm -hmm. 22 wins by those decks. Sorry, not 22 decks, but that deck only got 22 wins overall. The next most popular deck, Mono Red Prowess. Appeared 10 times, Eldrazi Tron 9 times, Dredge 7 times, and Four Color Death Shadow appeared 6 times. And in fact, as a small caveat to the previous list about overall match wins, the after Dredge, the next most successful deck was Four Color Death Shadow, which had 28 wins across these four challenges. Yep. And I think what I'd love to do is stop here for a second and talk about, because I just handed to it a second ago, like the super archetype idea, because it does change the, the picture of the metagame a little bit. So we talked about Titan being at the top of that, that heap already. If you so what I mean by super archetypes is like these different decks like Amulet Titan, Titan Field, and even even other decks that run Titan kind of all laddering up into one one deck, right? And so that was the top with 109 wins. But the second place list with wins was a bucket that I kind of broadly categorized as just combo, hmm. which is made up essentially of things like Ad Nauseum and Storm and that kind of combo deck. Jeskai Ascendancy. Jeskai Ascendancy was in there as well. There was 69 wins from those decks. And so it's been showing up a lot as well. Nice. And other than that, you know, Tron Vault Ahead, if you count Mono Green Tron with it, 
uh, mid-range kind of if you bolster it a little bit it comes in fourth by adding in things like Marty Pyromancer and other decks that are really in kind of the mid-range sense so that's kind of where things sort of stop coming out of uh, changing the order that you talked about earlier the only one I wanted to mention finally was that if you count Grixis Death Shadow and Four Color Death Shadow together as a single bucket that does become the fifth uh, the deck with the fifth most wins with 48 and in the past we and, and other sort of data collection data analysis type people you can even call those type of decks like thoughtsies decks like jund and death shadow decks get a lot of value from the thoughtsies and removal disruption and then having a clock at the end to more more or less effectiveness yeah well you know what's interesting is that i've had to reappraise what i think the death shadow decks are in the last couple of weeks especially after talking to michael rapp last last week and so check out the bonus episode if you haven't listened to it yet we have a long discussion about where the different kind of shadow builds fit within the metagame and what types of decks they really are but one thing he does say is that grixis and jun death shadow and four color death shadow are all kind of in the tempo to aggro continuum and so i have to reappraise what i've said in the past where i've kind of been like all these thoughts these decks are just mid-range decks um i've had to really think about that as a as i've been playing that deck recently and also after talking with him about it that i think they are much more in the kind of aggressive e or tempo camp depending on which flavor you're playing let's pepper this conversation really quick with just a look at the winners only four tournaments there are four winners and maybe there's something interesting there on january 18th the winner of the modern challenge was blue white control on the 25th amulet titan on February 1st, Jeskai Ascendancy. And on February 8th, Eldrazi Tron. So to me, this kind of goes to show that the most popular decks aren't always the ones that are winning the tournaments. They may give you the best shot at winning the tournament, but if you're a blue-white master, still probably playable. Yeah, blue-white control was close to the, the top of ours too, or sorry, control in general. If you factor in uh other control builds with it so blue base control like blue white and blue red a stan was was definitely an archetype that was appearing higher in there so i'm not too surprised to see that win one of the challenges especially early on you know the first one right after the bands uh and then seeing the titan take one makes a ton of sense seeing eldrazi tron take one makes a ton of sense ascendancy is the deck that of course is kind of an outlier but it does seem like combo is good like i said and so if you're someone who loves to play these kind of like one-off combo decks it's probably a reasonable time to try to play them we're going to pivot to the modern prelims now but we will return to this data in more broad strokes a little bit later as we share some of our insights and takeaways about the format at large but how different could the prelims be well let's find out dave take us through it So like we said, the prelims are a relatively new addition to Magic Online. They are daily-ish events. You can get qualifier points by doing well in them that let you enter PTQs. So this is part of the PTQ system. The reason that they've taken on a significance, like Shane mentioned earlier, is that Wizards has decided to release all the data from these for us to be able to look at. And so given that they're reasonably high-level play with reasonable stakes players that want to get in the ptq system have to mostly have to play these events to get qps you do get like a serious level of people playing these cards um there were 15 events that we looked at and put together a pivot table for and by the way i think that we should post up a version of this in in our show notes that'll let people uh in the nation have a look at the the data that we pulled together yeah 
what I love about these prelims is it's like going to your LGS and playing a five round event where your end boss is Gabe Nassif and, and Todd Anderson. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's kind of the beauty about magic online in general, right? Is like following someone on Twitter and thinking that they're really cool. And then all of a sudden you look up and you're playing LSV in a league and you're like, wait, the LSV. <laughs> what have I done? Yeah. He doesn't like my screen name because my screen name is LSV sucks. <laughs> it was you. Have you seen that? I mean, if you haven't seen his, his header image is him playing against someone named LSV sucks, which is funny. That's not me. It's like, it's like, it's like the conversation is like, this is awkward. <laughs> I like LSV a lot, but so I wouldn't, Mine would be LSV rocks <laughs> with two X's. Yeah. So anyway, they're five round events, like Shane said, and magic online publishes all the decks that go three, two and better in these, in these, um, prelims. So we published these together, pulled them together into spreadsheets and took a look at the way that the meta emerged on these. And here's what we have. If you look at the individual deck archetypes, the top five, decks for overall match wins were mono red prowess with 95 wins out of the 15 events that we looked at followed by bant snowblade with uh 58 amulet titan with 50 dredge with 48 and jund with 44 already really noticeable shifts from the modern challenge meta very much and it's it's interesting to me since you think there's a lot of overlap in the player base and and this mono red result at the top, without going into too much detail, doesn't surprise me at all because these preliminary posts happen so frequently that they all kind of blend together in my brain. But, you know, I scan them almost every day and I feel like without fail, there's always at least one mono red prowess deck in those lists. Sometimes it went 3-2, sometimes it wins, but they're always there. And I think that something to note is that Synthesis is a league style event you can fire up prowess and and just blast through a league and try to get your try to get your qps i haven't had time to play one of these yet because they do have kind of like defined times that they start from what i understand so it feels like they're they're i'm never they're never quite lining up with when i actually get to play but um so those raw deck counts i think change just a little bit if you look at the um at the super archetypes that we were talking about earlier because titan rockets up to being the top of the list again with 124 wins if you do this prowess slash mono red blitz or whatever i don't know why people call it mono red blitz suddenly but it is all of a sudden it's a blitz deck i guess it is the prowess deck prowess stays the same because there's really only one deck within that archetype um tron decks move up into into third place with 79 wins that and you know you can have some debate over how close green tron is to Eldrazi Tron is to Dice Station, which is another deck that that runs the Tron lands. But if you kind of lump all those Tron running lands together into a single deck, you get 80. Mid-range, you get 79. Combo, you get 79. And Stoneforge Mystic, if you look at that in an over as an overall archetype, you get 71. Really surprised that Stoneforge Mystic decks do so much better here than they do in the modern challenges. But Yeah, where do they come from? More on that later. Ooh we're going to talk about that in a minute when we do a breakdown of deck by deck because uh, i think that what we want to do is kind of look at each one of these archetypes and see kind of what what's going on with them why we think they're improving why we think they're on the the um 
Then the elevator going up. Yes, exactly. But the last thing we wanted to do for the picture, just what the prelims are, one of the last things is talk about how many of these decks went 5-0 as far as um, across these 15 prelims go. So we have two two things to look at last year. One of them is just a raw count of what decks have won the most prelims or 5-0 the most times. And it turns out that the number one deck on this list is Monored Prowess with three 5-0s, followed by Dredge, Demir Urza, what? Azorius Control, and Amulet Titan, all with two 5-0s. Right. And looking at the popularity within the format, there's actually a pretty clean cut of decks that appeared in the prelim list at least 10 times. So they may have gone 3-2, they may have gone 4-1. Mono Red Blitz, single most popular deck, 27 prelim appearances. Bant Stoneblade, 17. Amulet Titan, 15. Jund and Dredge both appeared 13 times. And Titan Field appeared 12 times. So it's almost almost a mirror image to the top five decks for overall match wins with some with some adjustment. But Bant Snowblade, what an outlier. Why don't we start, start with Bant Snowblade? So now we're going to go through and give our impressions about the individual decks that we've seen. Like I said, what's going up, what's going down. Bant Snowblade is super interesting because, I mean, I, I love that this deck is still out there and it's maybe considering worth picking up again. You know, it got a pretty big shot in the arm from Oko. And so I think a lot of ways I was surprised to see that it was still here without it. But I do think I do think it's worth noting that the player with the most wins among everyone in these prelim events, which we also counted based on everything, is McWinsauce, who is a well-known blue-white control player, also, of course, plays Stoneforge and was playing back control for a while during the Oko days. They have the most wins. Yeah, exactly. And on all the events, they registered playing uh, Bant Snowblade. So in some ways, there's certainly a few other players who were playing it as well, but a huge part of that is that McWinsauce is in here just doing well with the deck on their own. And so the question becomes, could, could I really pick it up? I mean, I, I'm not sure. I'm skeptical, Dave. Not to belittle your skill as a player, but you know we see this with some other examples, especially on MTGO grinders. When someone kind of focuses in on a deck, they will sometimes be the trophy leader in leagues. And I think they can really come to these tournaments and almost farm tickets. So we know what McWinsaw's decks are, right? It's not like they're using some kind of super novel technology that's always skirting the meta. I think at the end of the day, they're just great with this deck. They know how to play against the meta in these tournament styles. They probably have their own assessment about what's their good and bad, good and bad matchups and what are their likelihood and plan to play against them. So... I don't know. What this tells me is that, sure, the deck is fine, but maybe this is one of those decks that anyone can play, but few can master. Yeah, especially in this meta, right? And this is a more controlling build, too. Um, tends, looks like the lists that they played have tended to include Jace the Mind Sculptor. And so that that's a pretty largest deck, right? Like you're controlling if you're going to have that around. So it's, it's almost like a... Uh, like a blue white control that splashes green for some for some value elements like ice van Coatl and stuff like that noble hierarch so 
we'll just cross that one off the list. But I think now we should kind of go through by meta size or what we expect the meta size and modern to be right now. So let's start at the top of the list. Let's talk about Titan. Titan is the top of the meta game, and it's really not close. I think if you look at all of these events that we looked at, like we said, we looked at 19 events. It's pretty clear that across all of those, Titan is doing the best as a super archetype, and it just depends on what flavor of Titan you want to play. You know, I'm old enough to remember when Amulet Titan was a very hard deck to play, and it was kind of on the fringes of modern I think this is back in the day when we did one of our earliest deck dives when our show was pretty new and I, I run it through a few leagues and like, when did everyone learn how to play this deck? Yeah. I mean, there's, there are some people who, like you said, um, I think it's an easier deck to play now than it was a few months, a few months ago. And some of that is because you have redundant pieces for things now. You know, I, I, I don't have an impression if Dryad of the Elysian Field is in every single Amulet Titan deck now or not, but it is in every Titan Shift deck. And, you know, it kind of goes going from there. There's just um, other tools that are helping with consistency, like Once Upon a Time and things like that. Yeah, you also have this new inevitability engine in the form of Field of the Dead, which so many Titan decks have adopted as a way to, like, if I'm not playing amulet builds that just kind of combo in out of nowhere, I'll eventually set up a board state that you can almost never get through. Yeah. So none of us play Titan. No. What do we think about this being the top top deck in the meta right now? Effectively, it acts like some kind of combo deck, right? I mean, that's that's kind of what modern does in general. A lot of modern sort of feels like different types of combo decks but it feels like one of those decks that just generates so much power off of its cards and it's so consistent at getting the cards that it wants that it feels like a deck that you know there there are certain lines that happen a lot there are the occasional lines that happen less frequently that the better players can identify more easily but i think that it seems like it's a it's a somewhat straightforward highly redundant highly consistent and hard to interact with deck that all those pieces are there to make it successful. Like you said. Yeah. And now they get to do wild things like play Valakut with no mountains in their deck. Right. Thanks to Dryad of the Elysian Grove. And occasionally, you know, they'll run Dryad and Azusa so that they have a kind of like half an Azusa and a prismatic omen plus the real Azusa so that they can play their extra lands. And it's just, got a lot of tools right now and so i think as a result you know i'm not really thinking about picking up this deck because i am very far away from it in my paper collection um the other thing is that you know it's running oro occasionally oro i guess for value and things like that it's just um not a deck i'm gonna get close to so i'm gonna make sure i have all my tools that i can possibly get that fight this deck it amazes me just how powerful primeval titan is you know, it's the heart of all these decks. Without Primeval Titan, I don't think they would function or they would look very, very different at the very least. And it just kind of makes me wonder, you know, if Blood Moon isn't good enough to deal with these greedy land-based decks, I mean, that seems like a card that's kind of like breaking some of the fundamental rules of magic. Titan or Blood Moon? Titan. Titan. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. When we interviewed Todd Anderson a couple of weeks ago, he was basically like, what's going to happen? We, we asked him what he thought was going to happen in modern. And he was like, mm-hmm. can I interest you in a large green man? And, you know, he was right. And I think a lot of people had this call after after these cards were banned. And maybe this is a better kind of state for us to be in. 
um, as far as as far as that goes. But uh, it's still kind of like it's a lot at the top of the metagame right now. So you want to talk about Blood Moon for a second? Because I do have one deck here that runs it out of the board. Oh, I love Blood Moon. The next deck on the list, of course, that we talked about a couple of times is I'm happy to tell you, Stan, we talked about it earlier, that Mono Red Prowess is back. Remember when uh, Faithless Looting got banned and you know people were testing various shells for Mono Red Prowess and I was like, this deck stinks. I, I feel like I can't win with it anymore. It, it took a huge gut punch. A few months later, I sleeved it up again, took it to the LGS a few more times, and I got to say, I did quite a bit better with it. Did you really? Yeah. What do you think is different about it now? Because it's the same deck that was around after after um, Faithless was banned. And I had some I had struggles with that deck as well. I mean, I tried the Kiln Fiend version. I tried the Runaway Steamkin version. I tried the neither one of those versions. And I, I don't know quite what's going on right now that's making it a lot better. So in my experience in the past, some of the more problematic cards for me at the time were Weather the Storm and the Thopter Foundry Compo as like these just very popular tools that people were using to gain life in addition to whatever other incidental life gain was out there. So it became really hard for me to close the game in the end. And I think we're starting to see Thopter Foundry Combo decline and Weather the Storm become less relevant as well. So it's funny you mentioned that. I think we're going to talk a little bit later about where Urza is right now. Because Thopter is actually on the way up in Urza decks as they are on the way down as part of the meta share overall. Yeah, I'm looking at these lists, though, like you said, Dave, like these are essentially the same sort of prowess lists we've seen in the past. I think Steamkin now seems to be a standard inclusion. It's really controversial still. Like some people still hate that card. Like Ryan Overturf, who plays tons and tons of prowess on online yet, is running Mishra's Bobble in his version, you know, and it has like some real spicy stuff going on in there. But like, this is a world where Jund is in the top, let's say quartile of decks that are showing up in these events. Isn't Jund going to eat this kind of deck alive, removing the important creatures and just leaving them with a handful of burn? I mean, maybe that's why Jund is partially on the rise, right? Is that, is that this deck is there for it to prey on a little bit? Cause I definitely think Jund struggles a bit with, I mean, in my opinion, Jun would struggle a little bit with Titan. Now, I'm not an expert in either one of those decks, but it, it feels like, you know, you you can have removal to kill the Titan, but you're not always going to be able to out two, two for one them when they're just like dropping, you know, they're valicating you to death or making a bunch of zombies, basically. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, Dave, your point about Urza, I think, is interesting. I Surely you'll agree that the position of Urza now, especially post Oko, definitely post uh mox opal yep i mean it's clearly like urza's on uh, on an increase post that moment but that was a huge hit to that absolutely i think having like this tier one deck that had this life gain engine as part of its plan essentially being you know more or less erased from the top meta i think that helped a deck like mono red you know pop up yeah, and I think the other thing that helps a lot, I think we should talk about Urza right now, but the other thing, the last thing I wanted to say about Mono Red, and this is kind of how we got here, is that if Titan's at the top of the metagame and you have a fast deck that has Blood Moons in it, that seems like a good a good thing that you can cause some trouble for Titan with. And so I think that might be part of the reason that Mono Red Prowess is starting to get good too. The only problem with Prowess is that literally it, it, it 
the only way that it can get around an actual Titan is by making your prowess creatures so big that they can still attack into it. Because there's no other way to kill one. Well, you don't kill it. Then you just, at that point, you burn them out. Because if they're casting Titan on what, turn four at the absolute earliest? Right. In theory, by that point, you've done at least 10 damage. Hopefully. Yeah, hopefully. You, you, can't, you can't just get into those weird games where you're like, wow, I'm, I'm a little bit slow here. How am I going to get through a Titan? Well, I just have to unload my hand and attack with two, seven, eight Swift Spears, which is totally possible and has certainly happened before. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about Urza. It's definitely fallen down. You know, it was kind of undisputed, the number one deck before the bans happened. And now it's ranked right around 10th overall in deck count across both types of events. And what kind of deck is it right now? Well, it looks like most people have moved off of Simic and onto Gri- back onto Grixis, which is sort of where Urza's story started in the first place, before Oko, before people realized like uh, there was a way to build it that was just green. Um, you know, it's also moved back towards using the Thopter Sword combo. Yeah, the Thopter Sword combo didn't need Mox Opal. It just made the deck faster. Yeah, exactly. Although, I, I guess in theory, you did have another artifact that you got to, you know, sacrifice to uh, Thopter Foundry, but that can be replaced. Yeah, definitely. And there's, I think there's still a lot of potential in the card, and people are still just trying to figure out what to do with it. The one thing I would say is that I think it's worth noting that in the challenges and the prelims, Urza had two five o's urza archetypes had two five o's in the prelims and had three six ones in the challenges and so i my money is a little bit that maybe this deck is going to be going to re-rise after it continues to be tuned and maybe really how to how to how to find its kind of place in the metagame again so i i wouldn't bail on this deck quite yet i would be keeping an eye for it to come back towards the top of the metagame again because it looks like sometimes it still is performing really well yeah, Urza is just still a fantastic card that lets you do so many things in your turn. Mox Sapphires are good. I'm tired of telling you this. Yeah, and it still gets to run a Mox. It still gets to run Mox Amber. So if you build, make a build around enabling that, there's still ways to make it work. I saw somebody tweeting today um, about playing with a deck that was Underworld Breach grind grinding station combo with Moxes and and. Thassa's Oracle and Urza and all this other stuff that was just kind of like it's almost similar to like it wasn't Lotus kind of storm but it, it it was an underworld breach deck in modern that was using Urza and breach to be able to kind of just abuse a graveyard similar to those Lotus decks in Pioneer maybe that's the next direction it goes it's hard to say let's talk about the other Urza the architect he built a tower he built a mine and then he rested that's right. So the next kind of archetype, super archetype down is kind of Tron decks, right? And that's led right now by Eldrazi Tron because Ursus Tower and Green are apparently no longer friends. This is a sad thing. This is a sad thing for me to realize. I was hoping that I could maybe go back to my pile of Russian Tron cards, have some fun with it, but it doesn't seem like it's doing too well. Unfortunately, I think you need to get some chalices if you want to play, my dude. Ooh, Russian chalices? That seems a little pricey. It does seem a little pricey. Tell me why it's tell me why it's not so good. Well, I'm not sure why it isn't so good right now necessarily, but I can say that Green Tron is just not being played and that the new kind of old version, the core tapper 
deck that's called Dice Factory mm-hmm. that is really obnoxious to play against as well, especially if you're someone like me who really hates Urza's Tower as a card and a concept. Um, <laughs> On the conceptual level, I hate your architecture. I don't like that you get a bunch of soul lands. What, what else can I say? The This new version actually did more stuff, uh, appeared more times than, than the Green Tron deck and racked up a bunch of wins in the prelim. It had 22 wins in the prelims and it was in the same bracket as burn and Titan shift and storm as far as like the raw number of wins. So when you kind of put them all together, you get an archetype that's still happening. And Eldrazi Tron in particular was actively hit by the bands when they banned Microsoft lattice and it's still performing. All right. Yeah. One thing I've noticed, especially after the fact, uh, you know, Microsoft Lattice, my favorite card and operating system, it only was one slot in the sideboard. You only ever played one. And with the rise of these Titan decks, I think it's been replaced by Sundering Titan. And now you just have this new great silver bullet against the top dog in the meta that is also a win condition. Yeah, and it's interesting because when that ban happened, there was a lot of discussion about if Etron could survive without the ability to do the auto win button. And to me, it feels a little bit like it hasn't really missed a beat. You know, good players are still on it. At least they were at different points in the last month in the challenges. Um, it has one seven zero finish and one win in the challenges among performance in the prelims that was in the top tier as well. So it just seems to me like, hey, still still very good. I, I think that if you... And it's even still playing Karn, Karn the Great Creator as a package. It's not like they found a different thing to do with their sideboard and their main board kind of for value yeah because liquid metal coating was also fantastic yeah you know lattice wasn't the only good thing about this deck and i think as long as reality smasher and thought not are around and there's a deck that could ramp into those with some consistency is you know and and play chalice of the void and heck why not emrakul the promised end that you can actually cast and get that cast trigger uh i'm i'm actually not surprised this deck is still around i think it's going to be really good for a while Makes sense to me. And Shane, the reason why Mono Greentron might not be as present right now, I think that has to do with the presence of Mono Red Prowess as just like potentially a faster burn deck. Sure. Never helps. And I think these Titan decks can juke it, right? You can either, you know, if, if the Tron player has a Karn, then you can play a bunch of zombies. And if the Tron player has an Ugin, that's you know low enough then you play your primeval titan that brings in more titans yeah i'm curious how that matchup plays out i haven't played that in a minute so i mean i'm looking at the lists and i'm seeing that you know tron isn't off the face of the earth but it's not anywhere near as popular and as prevalent as it once was as it once was even like eight months ago or six months ago exactly question mid-range dead or alive apparently it's quite alive my pins, they're no longer valid. <laughs> we ran out of those a long, long time ago, man. So Jund was the deck that actually appeared the most in these top 32s, rather inexplicably. So within the Modern Challenge, we actually saw 12 copies across the top 32s. Um, and Dave has no idea why. <laughs> Does anybody have any idea why? It's pretty interesting. And they're they're very stock lists, too. Like, it didn't feel like there were any new cards in any of them or any, like new tech that suddenly enabled them to come back. I mean, cause Oko was a nightmare for it. And that's basically probably it. People love Jund. 
And now that Oko has gone, it doesn't hose their entire strategy. I also think maybe Liliana the Veil is really good right now. For the Edict? Yes, for the Edict, because people are playing kind of narrow creature strategies, as well as the consistent hand disruption. So you can potentially run a car or a deck like Titan out of gas. I think that's pretty good. And Goyf is just like a two-mana beater that gets the job done. And part of me suspects it's really those two cards that are keeping Junt so strong. And then the rest of the package, you know, you can tune to your meta. Yeah, it's funny. When you look at, like, what are the fatal push decks in the format? Like, what's picking off, a, you know, opposing Tarmogoyfs or on the other side of the battlefield? You basically have the Mirror and Death Shadow. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and speaking of... Death Shadow seems like maybe it's having a more middling kind of performance in the at least in the tournaments that we're looking at here, which is sad because I put a lot of time into playing Death Shadow recently. And it's the other Tarmogoyf deck, basically, right? So I feel a little bit like maybe some of the people who were playing Goyfs in Death Shadow might have gone, ah, I need better spells, I need more two-for-ones, I need to go more mid-range, and maybe came home to Jund. And so that's what's making me wonder if 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 Jund is there. And part of that, again, might be because of the kind of presence of burn not burn but mono red prowess yeah especially if 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 we stick to our theory that jund beats up on a deck like this which supports some of my experience with mono red prowess then i think maybe it has you know some decent matchups in the meta that it gets to prey on i mean there's always the balance right where it's like jund can take a lot of damage from its mana base you know if jund going down to 15 off of a fetch shock thoughtsies is never going to be good for it there is the blood moon issue in the sideboard for mono red blitz jund is going to know about that of course and can try to play around it but you can't always you don't always get your fetches to shock to to get your basics you sometimes have a couple shock lands in your hand and you're like well maybe they won't have it i can't really mold a five to try to get perfect basic mana. I have seen a couple of Jun lists that are running Arkham's Astrolabe. Oh my goodness. What? And playing what? Blood Moon themselves. <laughs> By the way, I don't think they appeared in any of these these prelim or challenge results, but I've seen it floating around a little bit, which just seems like some wild wild tech to bring into Jund. Yeah, but unfortunately, to pop back over to Shadow for a second, you know... It was top five for wins in the challenge. It was barely top 10 in prelims. They had only one 5-0 in a prelim for a shadow deck and no 7-0s or 6-1s in any of the challenges. It just kind of seems like maybe it's time to try something else for a minute. A bonus episode that came out earlier this week, you should check out, notwithstanding, where we go deep on shadow. Um, I might use this as a part of an excuse to kind of hop off of shadow and go play some prowess again, but... Uh, Let's see. Yeah, unlike Jund, if I'm playing Shadow and my opponent is on Burn, that just puts so much pressure on me to make absolutely no mistakes and draw very well. Yeah, it depends a little bit on which deck you're playing. If you, because post board, you have a chance to have a bunch of Cobru come in and, and help you out a lot. If you are on Jund or a uh, four-color shadow, you get a chance to play Tarmogoyf instead of Gurmag Gangler. So if they bring in some kind of like graveyard hate to keep you from gangling, you're a little bit more vulnerable, I think, with Grixis Death Shadow than on the four-color list, essentially. And so I found that my matchup on four-color against Redwood's like fine, but not great. But Grixis Death Shadow, I feel like, is a lot harder to, to kind of navigate that. All right, let's take a second to talk about a deck after my own heart. Mm-hmm. 
Blue Red Control. Yeah, this is a secret thing that I saw on the lists, I think. Just being plugged into that community a little bit, a lot of people are, are playing the Blue Red Breach with Emrakul and Through the Breach, even Aspiring Spike, friend of the show, and Shane's buddy. Oh, yeah, by the way, um, I forgot to mention that I was able to meet up with Aspiring Spike. I was able to meet up with uh, Yama Killer, uh, Gall, and uh, Everts, two streamers that we've had on the show before. They were cool to hang out with. So, yeah, props to them as well for being chill guys. Very cool. Yeah. So, you know, when Aspiring Spike starts playing through the breach, in addition to, like, all the usual blue-red control players, I think that speaks a little bit to the deck's positioning right now. And... Maybe it's just a better controlled shell in this moment than blue-white control because wraths aren't as good. Because I think that's why you play blue-white over anything else. Totally. And it's interesting because the counts of decks that we saw played and performing it are kind of like various performance thresholds that we had for decks. Blue-red was pretty much the same count as blue-white control. And I feel like I haven't seen that in a while. That was a pretty big surprise to me. Yeah, these blue-red decks aren't even playing Thing in the Ice as often as they used to. Um, Through the Breach just seems like such a popular finisher for these strategies. Um, And I think the fact that Thing in the Ice isn't seeing play kind of adds a little credence to my theory that Wraths just aren't as powerful in this meta as they were, you know, a few months ago even. Totally. You're not wrathing anybody's primeval titan away before they get value. You yeah, know? It's, you know, it's those zombie tokens that make me think that I want to bring an anger of the gods whenever I'm, you know, whenever I have this matchup. Because you, you gotta, <laughs> you gotta play that anger. Because sometimes those zombies, they get in the way. Awesome. So that's what we have kind of like looking at the major archetypes as far as what we saw. But I, there were a couple of final like quick quick hits that we we saw within the data that we thought were interesting just bring up to everybody already talked about this but the group that we labeled as combo storm ad nauseum neo brand random broken stuff seems to be good at the moment second in wins and challenges and fifth in wins and prelims so if you would like to not interact this is your time <laughs> you know that being said with regard to combo heliod and druid combo haven't really shown up as much as they had been you know during the oko period this is really surprising me because I know that the Lotus Box crew has been heavily on this. Uh, Zan Sayed has been streaming it. Zan and, and Collins were getting those decks together to play at a recent SCG. Uh, Chris Castor-Rapple, another host with Collins on Grindcast, he just, uh, I think he placed fifth place in the Modern Classic at, at uh, SCG Philly um, with the Helia combo. So it's doing things, but I don't think that people are rushing to it yet and i'm kind of interested why and hoping that uh that's something that i'm going to be testing soon just for fun and so i hope that i can see how it feels compared to the old devoted druid deck that i had played it a decent amount before i mean testing it soon for fun and also potentially for an upcoming episode of the show right well you know i don't like to spoil things dave I like to tease. Got to keep the the fans excited. Shane, as a former Druid player, I would think that mid-range is a huge problem for that deck as you have both hand disruption and removal for, you know, your creature combo pieces on the board. But there's so many pieces to it now. Do you know what I mean? You have your 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 classic devoted vizier combo. You have Heliod, which is indestructible. You have Kitchen Finks, which survives removal 
You have Ranger Captain to tutor up those pieces. You have Spike Feeder to gain infinite life. You have you know, Finale of Devastation, Once Upon a Time, Collected Company. You have all these ways to counteract the, the one-for-one removal that a lot of the, the point removal decks are offering. That I have to imagine that this kind of strategy is frustrating to face down now. Especially because stuff like Jund isn't always presenting the biggest clock. And if you're like blocking with the kitchen finks and, and it persisting and things like that, it's just like, it's got to be really frustrating. Well, because you get so much time to set things up in my, in my, you know, theory space here. Shane says if mid range isn't dead, Heliod will strike it down. Yeah, I was, I was, I happened to get two Heliods at the, at the GP. I can't wait to finish off this collection so I can never play this deck in paper. Add a boy. <laughs> Perfect. You guys want to talk about Dredge for a second? Oh man, let me talk about Dredge. Let me let me another deck that Shane used to play. So, uh, Ox the Ox rules. Okay, the Ox is the truth. It's super cool. Uh, it, it works incredibly well. It allows the deck to do really weird things, like even run Blood Moon effects in the sideboard if it wants to. So it's like, hey, all I need eventually is two red mana. And I'm going to take over the board. I'm going to I'm going to turn off your ability to win by maintaining my own. And so that's a pretty cool tech that the the deck can do now. It doesn't need that life from the loam end game. It just needs an ox end game. Uh, it's also still super fast. Losing looting does stink. I I did a lot of gold fishing and and just messing around with it uh, this weekend. And yeah, you have you have a narrower range of keepable hands, which does stink. But that's just a necessary consequence of of the deck like this is because it can't be too good. Um, And I think it still has, as we see from the results, it's still putting up pretty darn good numbers. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of in that bubble zone for us where it's kind of like right on the edge of frequency and win number in in our results. So I think it's a deck to keep an eye on. Yeah, it's one of those things too where it's not, quite tier one so people aren't always having those you know three cages or the ley line of the voids always so you can kind of dodge an incredible amount of hate that might have been there in a larger graveyard meta cool last couple of decks we want to talk about vile aggro y'all remember humans also known as people i still love you humans still fun to play Seems like this deck is trending down right now, though, and Ugh. this deck and Spirits both, if you, even if you look at them as one group together, really kind of came in pretty low on the list of our assessments. Um, they were right around 10th in frequency in both the prelim and the, the challenges, and so even together, the two decks weren't really doing that much. Um, I'm not sure why that is right now. I hate to see it. I mean, formerly humans could do something like name primeval Titan and get a lot of equity off that. But now that deck has different angles to win. And so something like if, if Titan's doing well and isn't reliant entirely just on Titan to win the game, then that's always pretty decent. That's an interesting point because if they name primeval Titan with their meddling mage, getting the field of the dead online becomes a much slower proposition yet it is still one yeah makes you think part of me thinks that this might be a matter of like titan kind of sets the precedent for the meta at the very very top and then everything else is sort of like a a a waterfall of responses to that 
And something that we're not seeing a lot of is GDS and Storm, uh, perhaps because of how they you know match up against the other top tier of the meta. And GDS and Storm, to, to me, have always been humans' favorite decks to play against. And without those two being as present, maybe the, you know humans doesn't have as many free wins as it needs to be successful in modern. Yeah. It's too bad, though. If you are a Spirits player, maybe it's time to check out Pioneer. May interest you in Pioneer. I mean, I think Humans still is a deck you can take to your LGS and totally have fun with. It still has a good power level. It's still lots of fun, but it might not be the thing you take to the, you know, the highest EV event. Yeah. Or if you do, you should have a really great plan against Primeval Titan and Field of the Dead. Last deck that I'd like to call out. Y'all remember Niv-Mizzet? Yeah. Not so good anymore literally zero results for it within the constraints of of these events from what from what we could tell i mean we're talking about what like 600 decks or something like this in this sample size that we looked at so there might be one that we missed but there's there's nothing here cave dan if you hear this please tweet what happened to niv yeah i don't know people are playing jund now instead part of me suspects that it probably comes down to just like the types of tools that Niv has access to, which are a bunch of gold cards, might not might not line up particularly well with the type of things that uh, Monored Prowess, Midrange, and Titan are doing. Because it is a control deck. So if your control pieces don't answer the format well enough, then your control deck isn't very well positioned. So although I can't actually identify the specific cards and the specific interactions, because I have literally no experience with Niv... I have to suspect that that's probably what's going on. Are there any surprises for you all on things that are also kind of underperforming right now? For for me, I have to say the Golgari Yogmoth deck not kind of taking off is a little bit of a surprise. It seemed like people were talking about how potent it was, and then it had the breakout tournament in uh, Aaron Barrich's hands, and it doesn't really seem like it's it's popped off. Well, this sample goes back to January 18th, and so there's a couple weeks in here that I think were before people really knew about that deck existing, or at least one week, mm-hmm. maybe. Um, but yeah, I, I think that's more of a factor of people not picking it up than anything else, personally, is is my, my gut there. Uh, I think Burn is just not keeping up with Prowess, mm-hmm. really. Yeah, so that's what Burns just not there because Prowess is just better. Well, yeah, and the thing that's really interesting is that if you look at the challenges, there were a couple of Burn decks that did pretty well in the first challenge after the ban in January, and then after that, it's just gone again. And I don't know if that's because people realized that Titan really was going to establish itself at the top of the metagame, and so we're not going to do Burn against it because Prowess is faster, or kind of what, but that's... um. That's kind of what happened to Burn, at least in the challenges. And then in the the prelims, there's basically seven Burn decks within the results that we have. And, you know, that's the same amount as Blue-White Control, Grace's Death Shadow, and regular Tron. And so, um, you know, it's there, but it just doesn't seem to be kind of like standing out in the win column as much as some of the other decks are. You know what I think it is? The creatures in Mono Red Prowess are bigger. And they get bigger because you're executing your game plan, i.e. triggering prowess. Mm-hmm. And also, in my experience, Mono Red Prowess beats up on Burn because prowess can play Dragon's Claw, 
And then you just start gaining so much life that burn never recovers while your big beefy swift spears just beat face or eventually you recharge your hand with a bedlam reveler that's also, you know, bigger than anything burn can deal with. Makes sense. It's, it's easy math, really. It's just math, you guys. All right. So real quick, as we get out of get out of here, what are the final takeaways that each one of that you guys have from this kind of discussion that we just had about what, what modern is, what are you going to do now? Is it going to change what your tendencies are? What are you thinking about now? The next time you go to play modern, uh, Stan, well, maybe I'll start with you. You know, I love playing at the LGS. I love, I love dice dojo, good games, some other shops in and around Chicago. This stuff doesn't impact me very, very much, to be honest. Like, I'm still going to either play a blue-red deck or a mono-red deck, or if I'm, like, feeling really something else, then, like, I'll whip out Stoneforge or Death Shadow. But in general, I, I'm trying to be more of that person who plays the one deck. So all I can do from this is look at how people are building blue-red and maybe mono-red and just try to adapt that to my local shop do any of these decks that we feel like are getting more frequent in the online meta are they appearing more often at the card shop you think like titan do you think that that frequency's changed at all uh i do see titan i mean one of the cool things about chicago i think even though it's a diverse meta in the stores i play and you're unlikely to have like the same matchup multiple times whatever is at the top of the tier it's it's pretty likely that at least one person in the room will have that. So I, I have to have a plan for Titan. And I, I definitely have to have a plan for Jund because half of Chicago has the Jund deck. Um, so in that regard, you know, this data and what's happening at on the larger competitive scales of modern does trickle down and inform local players, especially in a, in a community as big as Chicago's. But, you know, let's say I was someone who only had Bant Soul Herder or, you know, some other kind of fringy deck. I don't think this data is discouraging, per se. I think it just kind of tells you how you need to work your strategies and sideboards to kind of beat the top of the meta while still honing your own skills. Um, And there's nothing really new emerging here that tickles my fancy. Here's what I think. I think the Heliod deck is probably a lot better than it looks on Magic Online because the spike feeder combo is essentially impossible to execute. A lot of the combos to do with that deck are really challenging to execute. I think that's why it's slightly more popular in paper than it is online. I think it's going to be a better performer than it seems. It makes me excited to start playing it uh, in paper, especially. I think I also like to attack on the angle of, of Dredge still. I think Dredge is, is still really cool. I think the mechanic is fun to mess around with, and it's a powerful deck. And I like the concept of still being able to play a very good red deck because I think that there are decks that I can I can squeak out a few wins here and there with. I like playing them. I like executing the game plans that they have. And so having like a tier one red deck in the in the prowess gives me something to always audible back to for every tournament because I always do that. I always I always think about playing something else and I play a red deck. So if I'm playing something with high EV, uh playing mono red blitz is sounds like fun to me. 
but largely i think it's it seems good but it seems like it's pretty flat you there's different options for different types of players you can play grindy decks you can play big mana decks you can play comboy decks you can play jund removal style decks you can play your death shadow you can play your control with with snowblade it seems like it's everywhere and nothing seems too busted you know what this reminds me of hmm this reminds me of when is it phoenix was the number one deck in the format where you had this like very clear top dog but the meta beneath it was quite diverse i I think that's what we have right now with amulet titan or rather primeval titan decks um where primeval titan is this really important creature that informs like you know a handful of decks at the top but beneath that you can play a lot of different strategies. And it doesn't feel like as homogenized of a meta as we had uh, during Hogak or as we had during, um, what was that? Sultai Planeswalker? I already forgot his name. Oko. The sexy one? Yeah, Oko. Oko. You know, I, I never remember an X after I ditch him. Well, for my part, I think I kind of tipped my hand towards this a little bit earlier, but um, I really want to make sure I have a plan against Titan for any deck that I'm playing. And so I think that I'm going to plan to, I'm going to stick to the two decks that I've been playing the most, which is mono red prowess and four color shadow. And I'm just going to make sure I have a really solid plan against Titan, not a shadow, because one of the good things about that deck is that you can do a lot of uh, sideboarding. So you can bring get Ashiok, you can have Aether Gust, which is secretly, I guess, a really good card against Primeval Titan because of the the wording on the card and a couple of other things. Mm-hmm. Um and then yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna try Monorod Prowse because I get to do some blood mooning again and just kind of see where it goes from there. Yeah, I do think it's cool when the potentially fastest deck in the format is one I own. And that way if I want to just like make my life easier when I go to the store. Uh, if I want to play fast games instead of slow, grindy control matchups, at least I know I can fall back on this mono red prowess deck and I'll know how to play it. I won't hate playing it. And, uh, you know, if nothing else, my matches will last for 20 minutes. So there you have it, folks. The state of the meta in February of 2020. It's fun to look at these moments because I bet you in six months' time, if after a set has been released or, you know, Maybe something has been removed from the format. Who knows? The meta is going to be pretty different. And I, I love looking at these particular moments in time and trying to learn about them and, and you know look back on them and what we learned in that process. Because I think when you stick with a format like Modern that has so many staples that remain good for such long periods of time, it helps you grow as a player because you're more informed and you get to hold on to those lessons longer than, say, if you were a standard player. So it's kind of cool to analyze them and and see what changes when it does. Yeah, it's nice that we, you know, it's a a dynamic game. It's one that's constantly changing. It's one of the appeals to it. It's a constant puzzle to solve, right? But enough about Modern. That wraps up this week's show. If you haven't yet, make sure you subscribe to our podcast so you get the latest episodes as soon as they come out. And if you use Apple Podcasts, please leave us a rating and a review. If you'd like to submit a question to our podcast, pick our brain on something in Modern or Pioneer, heck, even suggest a future topic for an episode, you can tweet us at the dive down, all one word, or email thedivedown at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the show directly, you can join our Patreon, where joining at any tier gets you access to our super secret Slack channel. You can chat with us while we're busy at work or looking busy. 
Also, shout out to Manatraders.com for sponsoring the Dive Down. If you sign up for Manatraders using promo code THEDIVEDOWN, all one word, you'll get 15% off your first three months of renting Magic Online cards. As always, special thanks to the bands Nowhere and Spaceblood for letting us use their music. And until next week, get out there and play more Modern!